Well, let's pray. Dear Father, um, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you um, that you are a peacemaking God, that you have reconciled your children to you. Those whom believe, you have reconciled. And you have given us a ministry of reconciliation. So, Lord, I just pray that um, my words will be clear, that they will be helpful, that we may be known as a church that is full of peacemakers, that we seek and strive to be reconcilers. Lord, thank you for today. I just... um, I just pray for every woman that's here and for those who may hear this later. Um, I just pray that you will use these words of mine um, in in powerful ways. Lord, I, I just pray that we will not just be hearers of your word, but that we will do what it says. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well... I always, not always, but a lot of times I start with a disclaimer. And I have three of them today, okay? The very first one, you guys have to know, as I'm talking about peacemaking, do you think I have it all figured out? (laughs) If you do, you're crazy. I do not. I have those same fears of running from conflict or not handling conflict well. So I don't have this figured out. So um, when I do, I've said this before, you guys will be preaching at my funeral. So that's when it's all, it'll all be, it'll all be over. Um, Secondly, you know I'm a plagiarist. I have plagiarized, but see it's not plagiarism if you give credit. This is The Peacemaker by Ken Sandy. He's also got a website. I can highly recommend this. If you possibly ever talk to me about a conflict, I probably lent you this or I told you to go buy it. Um, So you'll hear lots of his material, but I'm giving credit, so I'm not a plagiarist. And then, like I said before we turned on the thing, this is like a flyover. We are we're on a rocket ship. I I thought at first we were on a on a airplane. We're on a rocket ship. We are flying over scripture. And I I feel like we're maybe just, you know, going to look quickly at a passage. So we're not doing the typical way, open a passage and you stay there. It it just, um, there's so much. Um, So that's, those are my three disclaimers. Is this a necessary topic? Well, we're first of all going to look at scripture and see, is there conflict in the Bible? Hmm, well, let's see. We've got Genesis 1, 2, and 3. Oh, and these verses are listed on your handout. And I'm not going through every verse on your handout. Um, You can turn there or just listen and go back to them. Um, But it starts at the fall. Adam and Eve are in perfect relationship with the Lord. And their fellowship is broken. This is the first place we need to see reconciliation. What do we see next? And I, well, I don't love this. But after, after the sin of that, we see blame shifting. Adam says, I, I, and I, Adam's got guts. He says to God, 
it's the woman you gave me. It's her fault. That is the first place of blame shifting. Then, what happens? She blames the serpent. She says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So we see blame shifting. Big part of conflict. Then, we do get to see the first announcement of the gospel at Genesis 3.15. He, Jesus, will crush your head and you, that Satan, will strike his heel. We see that first promise. Um, Then we see Adam and Eve, they're out of the garden. Then we see Cain and Abel, and Cain kills his brother. We see the first murder. Genesis 6-5, this is just talking about the condition of man. The Lord saw how great man's wickedness on the earth had become, and that every inclination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil all the time. Now, I'm sure as you guys are going through your reading plans, you're going to see trouble and strife all throughout Scripture. And it's not just in the Old Testament. And I could have stayed in the Old Testament and given you example after example after example. But we're going to fly, we're on our jet plane, or on our rocket, we're going to the New Testament. And there's tons of them, okay? So this is just a few. Mark 2, 9 through 18, in that passage, it's the wise men visiting um, baby Jesus. And Herod was, and the word is, furious. And what did he do because he was furious? He gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem under two years old. Again, we see murder because somebody was furious. John 3, 25 through 36, in this passage... It's talking about a discussion on the part of John's disciples with the Jew about purification. And the NIV calls it an argument. The NIV says an argument developed. Then John 4, 4 through 26, we see the woman at the well. And we find out one of the things that is causing problems in those days. Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Next, and this is a big chunk of scripture, and again, we're just flying over. We're, look, we're just looking at, at what we see in, in scripture. And Luke 4, 16 to 30, I'm not going to read the whole passage, but it's fascinating because in verse 22, okay, this is Jesus, he's talking, and the, the people are just, they're enthralled with him. And here's what the people say, or what scripture says about the people's response. And all were speaking well of him. And wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? You go down six more verses, okay? And now Jesus kind of nails them and says, Gentiles and Jews, they're going to be united. They're not happy. And now here's what they say in verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. And they got up and drove him out of the city led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. So we go from, I love you, to I hate you, I'm going to kill you, in six verses. Do you ever feel like that? I know sometimes I do. Then another favorite, because I like to, well, I shouldn't say that. I won't say that. 
Um, Mark 33 through 35. They, and this they is the apostles, they came to Capernaum, and when he, Jesus, was in the house, he began to question them. What were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent. For on the way, they had discussed with one another which one of them was the greatest. We see the apostles fell into that. And I'm sure, and scripture doesn't say this, but I can assume if we're getting in a little group and we're talking about which one of us is the greatest, if you have siblings, you've probably done that. I kind of think the apostles were fighting, okay? So, I see, I don't, I don't know if they'll be listening to this. <laughs> oh, well, technology. But it's true. So, and then in our last lesson, we looked at Mary and Martha, sisters, conflict. And isn't that kind of something that's, I don't have a sister, but isn't that kind of something that you hear about sisters squabbling? Have you ever seen that or lived through that? I, I don't have a sister. I squabbled with my brothers. Um, in Acts 15, we see trouble between Paul, Barnabas, and John Mark. And John Mark, is the, he's the author of the Gospel of Mark. And they split. There was a big split over that. It was reconciled, though. Because we do see that later in scripture. But we see problems at the church in Corinth. We see Paul encouraging the Ephesian church to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. We see Paul teaching on unity over and over and over. Um, In the Holman Study Bible, it talks about Paul's use of grace and peace in all of his letters start that way. Grace begins and ends every New Testament letter that contains Paul's name in the greeting. The Holman says, without grace from God, a person cannot have peace from God. Grace and peace. Peace is all throughout scripture. James 4, speaking about struggles, quarrels, conflicts. James says, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source of your pleasures that wage war in your members? To me, that sounds awkward. This makes more sense. The NIV says, what causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires? Your evil desires? Your bad desires? No, your desires that battle within you. You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasure. So when we think, this is just scripture, when we think about conflict, does anybody think it's much different today? There's conflicts in our homes, our workplaces, our neighborhoods, our cities, our states, our nation. Think of our last election and our world. These conflicts are a result of the fall. We shouldn't be surprised. Conflict is everywhere, from somebody defriending you on Facebook 
all the way to murder. And the church isn't immune. Um, I want to look at one more. We're going to look at this now and again later on. But I want to look at one more conflict. And this is one that's kind of haunted is probably the wrong word, but it's kind of haunted me. It's from the, in Philippians, um, when Paul's writing to the Philippian church, and I don't know how to pronounce their names, so I'm just going to pronounce them, and it's wrong, and that's okay. But have you ever thought about what would it be like to be Judea and Syntyche? Do you think they heard Paul's letter together? Maybe they, I mean, church wasn't here, there, and everywhere like it is now, where if you get upset, you go down the road. I kind of think they're sitting in the house, Beauty is probably over here. Sintiki's over there. This letter is being read to the church. And Paul, you know, we're, we've got three chapters, or, th- well, three chapters. And then here's, here's what it would be like. Therefore, my beloved brethren, whom I long to see, my joy and crown in this way, stand firm in the Lord, my beloved. I urge Judea and Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. I plead, this is, and I'm not sure which version this is, okay? I plead with Judea and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. The ESV says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. I can't imagine sitting in this room, okay? Can you imagine if all of a sudden I'm reading a letter that came from Scott Maxwell and it says, Sarah Demarest and Anne Angstead, I plead with you two ladies to get along. I mean, that just has haunted me. Haunted me. And then, it, it gets even worse, okay? Indeed, true companion, I ask you to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement. Help these women. I mean... It sounds like they're really kind of in, in, in a knot. So conflict abounds. Becoming a Christian didn't take the conflict away. Um, our relationship with the Lord changes. We're given new abilities from the Lord to live in a way that pleases him. But it doesn't, it just doesn't go away. And, and I'll tell you, since I started prepping for this, I mean, I feel like I'm, I'm kind of glad today has come. I'm like, now this is going to sound really silly because it's not going to go away. But it's, it's been everywhere. Everywhere. I was with Tom and my niece. We're sitting on a bench eating ice cream. And there's this parking garage behind us, okay? And these women, we hear... They're fussing each other about a parking space. And and I love the one lady. She says, it's such a nice day. Why don't we just get along? I'm thinking, that sounds like Rodney King. Can't we all just get along? But then it was, within this past week, I heard on the news that there was, actually up in Scottsdale, a man that ended up losing his life because he pulled a gun on a police officer. Not the brightest thing to do. 
But he had gotten into a conflict with the lady over a parking spot. It's everywhere, okay? I mean, I walked into a pizza parlor with, with two of my grandkids, and I look up and I see the NASCAR guys, and they're duking it out. I'm thinking, well, NASCAR guys don't usually do this. Is I'm looking at it, and they're all, you know, in a pile, like what you see at hockey games where they're all in a pile. And so I went home and I Googled it, you know, NASCAR fight. Sure enough, they got in a big fight over the race. It's everywhere. So obviously there's conflict. We all know that. We all have it. Another reason that today's subject is necessary is because there are, and again, I skimmed the surface, there are a ton of commands in Scripture that are especially directed to, to us as believers to get along, to live at harmony. So I want to go through, and these are listed on your handout, and there's a few extra ones, so I'm just going to go through a few of them. Is If possible, so far as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. That one, get your brains around, because you can remember that. Okay, I need, as far as it's possible, I need to live at peace. 2 Corinthians 5.17, and I want to read this, because this, This encompasses the gospel. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all these things are from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed to us the world, uh, the word of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We have a ministry of reconciliation. God reconciled us to himself, and now we are to do the same. 2 Corinthians 13.11 says, Finally, brethren, rejoice, be made complete, be comforted, be like-minded. Remember our friends Judea and Syntyche? Be like-minded. Live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. And there's lots and lots of other commands. Um, And I just want to remind you what the greatest commandment is. When Jesus was asked that by the Pharisees, Jesus told them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. We need to love God and we need to love our neighbor. If you're in conflict with your neighbor, are you loving him or her? No. So we need to love God and we need to love our neighbor.
So in order for us to live in peace, in unity, to be like-minded, to have harmony, what do we need? We need the gospel. And I went to our doctrinal statement because that seemed like a logical place for me to go. And in talking about um, what we believe and about man, it says, We believe that man was created in the image and likeness of God in innocence and without sin. That's Adam and Eve. But in Adam's sin, the race fell, inherited the guilt of his sin, a sinful nature, becoming spiritually dead and alienated from God, so that man is a sinner both by nature and choice. Man of himself is incapable of remedying his lost and depraved condition. I think this explains a lot of the why there's conflict where it can get a little bit tricky is okay why isn't the church just happy land well that's our mixed condition okay but because of that guilt of sin this is why sin is out there um, and from our biblical conviction number five, okay, does anybody know what biblical conviction number five is? Take a stab. Doctrine of saint, well, that's close. It's the doctrine of sanctification, okay? Um, Here's God's remedy for us as believers. The gospel, and remember the gospel Jesus dying for our sin. Okay? The gospel is not merely important at the point of our conversion. The power and promises of the gospel are essential for living the Christian life every day. The gospel is the only reason you or I can even begin to hope to be a peacemaker. Prior to conversion, okay? Every person was a slave of sin, impurity, lawlessness, shame, and death, unable to keep God's law, but unable to escape God's law, condemned by law and incited by sin to further lawlessness. So when we see somebody in a parking lot losing their life because they got in a fight over a parking spot, we shouldn't be surprised. But by his grace, God has united every believer to Jesus Christ, crucified crucified and raised, so that the believer would be powerfully freed from the tyranny of sin to undoubtedly become a slave of God and a slave of righteousness and a slave of obedience. God has united us by the power of the gospel to Jesus Christ. That's why we're able to be peacemakers. Our death in him changed our relationship to sin and law so that we would no longer be slaves to sin and condemned by law, but undoubtedly raised to new life and freedom from the power of sin's mastery. The believer now 
by the power and promises of the gospel, has died to sin and has been raised with Christ, walks in newness of life, is being progressively conformed into the image of Christ, is under grace, which reigns through righteousness to eternal life, is a slave of God, of righteousness and obedience. That's why we can be peacemakers. As a believer lives the Christian life, he or she must never graduate from the gospel. We can never forget this. The gracious promises and the transforming power of God for us in the gospel are needed every day. The promises of God for us in the gospel are immeasurably more powerful for sanctification than our promises to him. I love that. I love that. It's because of what he has done. It's not because I'm going to promise, God, I want to be a peacemaker, so I promise I'm not going to to say anything negative to anybody ever again. Okay? It's because of what he has done. As we fight sin, and, and it is a battle, we must find ourselves at the cross of Jesus Christ and be reminded of the objective grace realities of our new position in Christ. As we seek to obey God and be conformed to the image of Jesus, we must anchor all of our efforts in the finished work of Jesus Christ at the cross. It was by Jesus' death, burial, resurrection that he secured for us the power and promises we need to live a life pleasing to God. And I I love this. And again, I am reading this directly from our doctrinal statement and our biblical convictions. And I would encourage you, go back to those. If you've been in membership class, you've gone through them. But it had been a while since I'd looked at it. I was so excited when I read it. I thought, I need to share this with the ladies. But I love this. We desire as a church to cling to these grace realities of the gospel in all that we do. Ladies, we can try really hard not to be Judea and Syntyche. And we can try really hard to get along. But we can't do it in and of ourselves. We need Christ's finished work on the cross. We need him. It's because of what he has done that we can be peacemakers. Now, I added this after the outline, so you may want to write these few verses down. Because these are what I'm going to call, and, and, and like I said, I just feel like this is the tip of the iceberg. Um, but here's some preventative things. I know we all get in situations, you know, if... If you talk to people, if you're around other people, I mean, unless you're a a monk living in a monastery where you don't talk to anybody, and I'm sure, I am sure there's a way they have conflicts there. It's probably a cross your arms, do this, or I'm not going to look at you. I mean, I'm sure they get fussy with each other, even there, because that's our nature, okay? But here's some preventative things, um, encouragement from scripture. And this is, again, this is the tip of the iceberg. There could be a hundred more. But um, Proverbs 15.1, 
A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. I think we all know that. You know, there's going to be times where somebody, and, and usually it's those that we're closest to, they say something, okay, and it's not, it's maybe a li- got a little bit of wrath in it. You can throw gasoline on that fire if you want. I know I'm queen of that. It's like, Rah! But you know what? Scripture tells us a gentle answer turns away wrath. Proverbs 18.2 The tongue has the power of life and death. We can kill each other with our words. Or we can bring life. Proverbs 12.18 Reckless words pierce like a sword, but the tongue of the wise bring healing. And ladies, I want to just encourage you. Proverbs has tons of encouragement of how to live. You know, we all know the ones about better to live on, what is it, better to live on the corner of a roof than what, with a really lovely wife? No, it's with the dripping faucet. Okay. And he does that. He doesn't do it in a bad way. He, he's not like, eh, eh. But he'll encourage me with that Oh, you want to go live on the corner of the roof? Okay, I got that one figured out. Um, Proverbs 10:19. When words are many, what abounds? Sin. Yeah. When words are many, sin is not absent, but he who holds his tongue is wise. And Ephesians 4:29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. I believe if we followed Ephesians 4.29, there would be a lot less conflict. And I know it's easy for me to say, standing here in this room where you guys are just sitting there listening, But when we get into that day-to-day life, um, it's easy to have that unwholesome talk that doesn't build up and it doesn't benefit. So back to your handout. Our definition. So that was just a little, I don't know, preventative medicine there. Okay. Um, On your handout, here's our definition of peacemaking. And this comes from... A peacemaker's um, website. It's responding to conflict biblically. And I am queen of being able to tell you how to respond to conflict not biblically because when somebody does something not nice to you, I want to help you figure out a way to, you know, get even. That's my flesh, okay? But I know what God's word says. And so that's what I want to bring to you to help us um, figure this out so that we will be known as peacemaking women. So there's some different aspects of peacemaking. First of all, when I'm the offender, when I have sinned. And then secondly, 
when I have been offended, when I've been sinned against. And I want to, before we um, get back to the handouts, so you're going to just have to listen for a minute. (laughs) And I don't know if there's space on there to write. But what do I do when I've been sinned against? Or when I have sinned against someone and I need to seek forgiveness. And I want to kind of give some, um, I, don't, I don't know what you'd call them, not disclaimers, um, just reminders, okay? First of all, the first reminder comes from Jay Adams. And Jay Adams is like the father of biblical counseling. Um, good author. If you're involved at all in biblical counseling, his name comes up often. And he talks about heart sins, okay? And he says, these are the ones that don't grow into full-blown sin against another. They are sins like lust, envy, covetousness. These sins need to be confessed to God. So if I'm coveting something you have and I don't do anything with it, I don't need to go to you. And there are some of you I have told you I covet your purse. And there's some of you I have told you I covet your hair. Um, because I do, I confess. Um, but those sins need to be confessed to God. A biblical pattern is you confess your sins to as wide of an audience that you have sinned against. So if I'm thinking sinful thoughts about someone, but it doesn't grow into a full-blown sin where I confess it to God. Wait, I confess it to God. But, okay, so, for example, I'm coveting this beautiful Gucci purse. Okay, right there. Now, I don't need to confess that. But if I kind of do this, take all her stuff out and give her my Target bag, the, you know, I, I've got a phone, okay, and I give it back. Well, now I've sinned against her. I've just stolen, okay? I need, I need then to go and seek her forgiveness. I need to say, will you please forgive me? I stole your Gucci bag, okay? Or here's another way that can happen. Huh? Can you believe it? She's got a Gucci bag. Not only does she have one, do you know how many Gucci bags she has? Don't you think that that's a little excessive? <laughs> really? Hey, I have just sinned against her. Okay? So, at that point, then I need to go and say, Oh, will you please forgive me because I slandered you? You know, it could be, well, she can't afford another Gucci bag, can she? Um, so, if... Now I've gone and I've done that. Now I need to confess my sin to God and to that person. Okay? And here's a big deal. Okay? I want to help us remember the difference between a mistake and sin. Okay. I feel like everything I say I'm going to get in trouble. Tom, Tom... Yesterday, I think he'll be okay with me sharing this. Um, he was listening to Kayla, and they were talking about Jesus died for your mistakes. And he said, I just 
and just, I'm going I'm to call him. It's like, you know what? A mistake would be if I grab this bag thinking it's mine and I walk out, you know, that's a mistake. I can say I'm sorry. I don't need to confess the sin of a mistake. Jesus didn't. I say about this. Jesus did not die for my mistakes. Jesus died for my sin. It's just, So a mistake is, is different. You can say you're sorry for a mistake. But if you sin, you need to seek forgiveness. Now I want to talk about a counterfeit confession. I've kind of already touched on this. This is, I'm sorry. What does I'm sorry do? It expresses a feeling. And I had it in my bag to bring. Well, I had it out, and then I forgot to bring it. A mistake. A ball, okay? I want to show you. So, Lori, I'm using your watch, but I promise I won't throw it. So, Allie... Okay? Say I'm sorry does not ask anything of the other person. And in our household, when we occasionally forget and just say, I'm sorry, my standard is answer is, uh, I hate that this is recorded because I feel like I'm opening myself up to the whole wide world. So my my loving, gentle response is, yes, you are. <laughs> I do say it with a smile and a laugh, but it's true, you know? Yeah, okay, that was, yeah, that was, sorry. Okay, then an apology. Okay, what's an apology? Yes. Absolutely not. However, in our house, it does work because Tom and I, both will say that and then laugh at each other. So, in our house, you can do that. But no, please don't ever, don't, don't, no, 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 no. Don't see, this is dangerous. Okay. So, an apology. I want to apologize to you, Holly, for taking your purse. But you know what? You've got 10 of these. And I don't have any. So, I just want to We don't want to apologize when we sin, okay? Another no-no. Holly, will you please forgive me if I took your Gucci purse? But I really needed it way more than you do, and maybe you thought it would be okay. No responsibility. Yeah, there you go. It's not mine. It's your fault. 
And start watching when politicians and those guys, I mean, their apologies are awful. They're just awful. It's like, you know, well, you know, I'm really sorry for what I did. But, you know, it's, 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 it's the woman you gave me, God. It's always somebody else's fault. Do, are you asking if I need to go confess that yeah. to her? If you just keep struggling with that, and you just, you, your, your covetousness is just causing you to not even be able to you know, have a relationship with that person, or would that be something you just still... I think it's on? because you haven't acted upon it, you haven't directly sinned against her, you may need to talk to her as a friend, and just say, you know, I, I'm dealing with this sin. Can you help me? But it's not her fault. Right. That she, and you haven't directly sinned against her. But if you've gone out and badmouthed her to everybody because she's got a Gucci purse, then you need to go and you need to clean it up with all the people around and say, I was, I was, that was sin what I did. Please forgive me. You need to go to her. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I think in that case, maybe the thing you confess, I have been kind to you. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, you don't want to make her feel bad that she's got a Gucci purse, okay? And that's just like a really random kind of, you know, not maybe, well, maybe it is a real situation. I, I don't know. Um, so here, here's another, you know, think about this if you heard this. I'm sorry if I hurt you, but you're difficult to get along with. Okay. Those are all ways not, not to deal with your sin. Okay? So how do you confess sin? Matthew 5.23 says, Therefore, if you are presenting your offering at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and present your offering. We need to go quickly. We don't want to let this stuff fester, especially in our homes, especially in our homes. To confess, what that means is to say the same thing. It's to agree with God. So you want to confess your sin to God. So when, when you've sinned against somebody, okay, you want to start by confessing to God. And First John 1 John 1.9 has the promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Secondly, we need to repent. We need to turn from our sin. And we need to go. And if you're afraid to go when you've sinned against somebody, pray. Ask for God's grace to help you. So you've sinned. You need to go. Um, On your handout, 
and this comes from peacemakers. He gives he calls them the seven A's of confession. First of all, you need to address everyone involved, all those you've affected. Okay? So back to the Gucci example. If I've slandered Holly to five people, I need to go to five people. And I need to say, you know, will you please forgive me? I have slandered Holly. Then I need to go to Holly and I need to seek her forgiveness. Okay? Avoid if, but, and maybe. Okay? It's not, you know, if only you would have kept that Gucci bag under the table so I didn't see it. I wouldn't have, I wouldn't have said those things about you. It's your fault. You don't do that. Avoid those words. And that's what I have seen often in, you know, when you, when you see politicians or, you know, those confessions. You usually have a it, but, or maybe, or perhaps in there. Admit specifically both to your attitudes and your actions. Be specific. Don't just, will you please forgive me? Well, what'd you do? It needs to be specific. Will you please forgive me when I said that about you? It was unkind. As Sarah said, I wasn't being a good friend. I'm sure that hurt you. Will you please forgive me? We need to acknowledge the hurt. And this is where you can say, I'm sorry. You know, will you please forgive me? I know what I did hurt you. I am so sorry. I can only begin to imagine how much that hurt you. That's okay to say I'm sorry. That You can't express that feeling um, at that point. Okay? Five, accept the consequences, such as making restitution. You know, if you've, if you've, I don't know, if you've, I stole that Gucci purse and then I took it home and I cut it up with a knife because I'm so jealous about it. Okay, guess what? I need to go get a job so I can replace that Gucci purse. Okay? You need to figure out how do I make, how do I make restitution? How do I make it right? Um, and I think it's important to say in that situation, you know, here's what I did, and here's how I plan on correcting it. Um, then alter your behavior. Change your attitudes and actions. Holly, by God's grace, I am not going to covet your Gucci purse anymore, and I am going to work really hard at not being covetous. Okay. Um, and ask for forgiveness. Don't just say, well, I'm sorry I took your purse. Because again, all that does is it leaves that in her court and then allow time. Now, if I have a reputation of stealing her Gucci purse and I keep doing it over and over, she may not believe me. Okay, That's where the allow time, especially in our close relationships, I don't know about you guys, but me, I typically do the same sins multiple times, okay? So there can be that sense of, yeah, but you've done that, and you've done that, and you've done that. And so sometimes it does take some time. Um, and in this, 
Remind yourself of the gospel. Remind yourself, you know what? I can change, and I can be more like Christ. It's going to take hard work, you know. But you know what? God's power is at work within me. Okay? Confession is saying to another one, to another, you are right, I did wrong you, I did sin against you. It's admitting what has been charged as true. In the final analysis, true confession is agreement with another that is in agreement with God's word. So again, what, what does it sound like? Will you please forgive me for not listening to your opinion? I'm sorry that I hurt you when I did that. Okay. Jay Adams gives this counsel, stick entirely to your own sin. Especially in those close relationships, things can kind of escalate. And so we can, I can start something and then it gets fed a little bit and then it gets a little bit worse. And so I can, not that I would ever do this, point to somebody else's sin trying to make mine look not quite as bad that's not right stick to your own sin so what do I do if someone comes to me and tells me that I've sinned against them and I want to remind you be approachable this is important in our everyday relationships those in our homes, our workplace, our church, and our small groups, and our discussion groups. Be approachable. Don't have that wall around you so that if you sin against somebody, and maybe you're unaware of it, that they feel like, well, I'd never go to her because she'll rip me apart. Okay? Be approachable. If somebody comes to you, thank them. Thank them for coming to you. Ask them to forgive you. Now, this is if they agree, or if you agree with them. Confess your sin to God and thank the Lord for his mercy to you in revealing your sin and for paying the price for that sin. And then repent. You need to change. Okay? That's when you agree. Now, here's where that's pretty much a no-brainer. Okay? But what if they come... And they tell me that I've done something that's sin against them, and I don't agree. C.J. Mahaney in his book on humility says, Don't be put off when a friend's observations may not be 100% accurate. I've found that there's truth to be gleaned at times, even from an enemy's critique. Humility doesn't demand mathematical precision from another's input. Humility postures itself to receive God's grace from any avenue possible. Jerry Ragg, in Exemplary Spiritual Leadership, this is a book that the elders have and their wives have gone through. Um, he says in his chapter on criticism, and I, I think this applies because you know if somebody comes and tells you you're in sin, often you feel like you're being criticized. Um, and here's, here's some suggestions that he has. Learn how to listen. Don't just hear, but listen by showing genuine interest in what's being communicated. 
In other words, don't be figuring out your defense. That's what I would do. Is Well, wait a minute. You're wrong because I didn't say that exactly like that. And that didn't really happen on Tuesday. It happened on Monday. So you're wrong. Okay? So learn how to listen. Ask questions when clarity is needed. Be careful, though, that you're... See, and I'm so busted because this is me. <laughs> Be careful, however, that questions are not an attempt to divert attention from the central issue being raised. So, in other words, ask, you know, help me understand this or please be patient with me and tell me again what the issue is. Um, I'm not so good at that. And godly responses. Listen without interrupting or forming snap conclusions. Those are two favorites of mine. Interrupting and snap conclusions. Those aren't biblical responses, okay? Don't do that. And don't attack the messenger. Our question must be, Lord, how can I learn from what this person is saying? So again, if they come, they bring you something, thank them for coming to you because guess what? It's not easy to go to someone and say, you know what? You're in sin. Um, so thank them for, for coming to you, for loving you enough to come. Even if you don't agree, you can be thankful that they cared enough to come. You may want to ask for some time to consider what they've said. Um, and you can, you can say at that point, you're sorry that you hurt them by what you did. Now, you may want to ask others to help you see your sin, especially if it's an, somebody's coming and saying, hey, your attitude with me, or your tone with me, or your whatever. You may need someone else to help you see. Um, pray. Ask the Lord to show you if there's some merit in what they're saying. And I've, I found this quote from Mary Elizabeth Baxter. She was from the 1800s. I have no clue who she is. But she was talking about difficult members in the church. And I think these difficult members probably approached others. A lot of the time they maybe were busybodies. Um, but here's, here's what she says about those people. And I, I think it's helpful when we consider if somebody comes to us. Every difficult member in a church is a provision of God for the trial of the patience of some other members and, very specially, of the leaders. There is no chance in any of the arrangements which God permits. If we look at the difficult members in their relation to us, we may well have ground for complaint. But if we see them all as instruments in the hand of God, we know that not one word or one action can take place except it be needed for the education of his own. Do you view the people in your life as instruments in the hand of God? Now, one last thing as we deal with our sin. Jay Adams says, we must never confess as sin what you are not sure biblically is sin. 
nor should he confess to sins that he does not believe he has committed merely in order to appease another who has charged him with wrongdoings. Confession must be the genuine, heartfelt conviction of the repentant confessor. In other words, we don't just... Somebody comes to me says that I have sinned against them. I don't agree with them just to get them off my back. And, and typically, wouldn't that be whatever? Um, we don't do that. We need to, again, we need to ask the Lord to show us. Um, now we're going to look at when I have been offended, when someone has sinned against me. So somebody sinned against me and they come to me and they ask me to forgive them. What's required of me? And I want to make a little note here. They may come and they may say, I'm sorry. Please don't correct them and say, I went to something on peacemaking. You're not doing it correctly. Okay, if they say they're sorry, you can say, you know what, thank you for coming to me. Um, If they don't do it perfectly, if they throw in an if or a but or a maybe, be gracious, okay, Um, and you need to forgive them. Ken Sandy, I want to read his definition of forgiveness because it's extremely helpful to understand when we forgive what we're doing. To forgive someone means to release from liability to suffer punishment or penalty. Aphemi, a Greek word that is often translated as forgive, means to let go, release, or remit. It often refers to debts that have been paid or canceled in full. Know how to say this. Cherizome, another word for forgive, means to bestow favor freely or unconditionally. This word shows that forgiveness is undeserved and cannot be earned. As these words indicate, forgiveness can be a costly activity. When you cancel a debt, it doesn't simply disappear. Instead, you absorb a liability someone else deserves to pay. Similarly, forgiveness requires that you absorb certain effects of another person's sins and release the person from liability to punishment. This is precisely what Jesus accomplished at Calvary. He secured our forgiveness by taking on himself the full penalty of our sins. Remembering what he did to purchase our forgiveness should be our greatest incentive to release others from the penalties they deserve. One of the primary passages on forgiveness, and it is a place to go if you've been sinned against, okay? This will help you. It helps me. Matthew 18, 21 through 35. Then Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? up to seven times. And that seven times, Peter was being Peter. He took common in that day by Jewish law, 
my understanding is they were required to forgive three times. So I figure Peter probably went three plus three plus one more for good measure and came up with seven. That's how I figure he did it. I don't know. Um, it may be because seven is complete. I, I, I don't know. But I'm going to figure it's three plus three plus one for good measure. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Now, did Jesus mean at 491 you don't have to forgive? No, that's not what Jesus meant. He meant you need to forgive, period. And then he goes on to tell this parable. For this reason, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. When he had begun to settle them, one who owed him 10,000 talents was brought to him. 10,000 talents was the biggest number. It's an unpayable debt. But since he did not have the means to pay, to repay, his Lord commanded him to be sold, along with his wife and children, all that he had and repayment to be made. So the slave fell to the ground and prostrated himself before him, saying, Have patience with me, and I will repay you everything. He can't repay them everything. This is an unpayable debt. And the Lord of that slave felt compassion and released him and forgave him the debt. But that slave went out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him a hundred denarii, and that's like a day, maybe a month's worth of wages. So it is a payable debt, okay? Seized him, began to choke him, saying, pay back what you owe. So his fellow slave fell to the ground and began to plead with him, saying, have patience with me and I will repay you. But he was unwilling and went and threw him in prison until he should pay back what was owed. So when his fellow slaves saw what had happened, they were deeply grieved and came and reported to their Lord all that had happened. Then summoning him, his Lord said to him, You wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should you not also have had mercy on your fellow slave in the same way that I had mercy on you? And his Lord moved with anger, handed him over to the torturers until he should repay all that was owed him. My heavenly father will also do the same to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from your heart. Okay, let me help all of us. This is helpful to remember. I'm the one with that unpayable debt. Okay? That 10,000 talent or 10,000 bag of sin. Christ forgave me. I've been forgiven much. How can I find anybody, anybody that I can't forgive? Okay? I must forgive because the sinless one paid for my sin. Somebody else's sin against me is nothing compared to what I have done to the sinless one. If we can remember that. It will help us forgive. And ladies, I am not naive. I know there is sin that is very grievous and very difficult to forgive. I understand that. I mean, there, you know, and 
I always say, Lord, please don't test me. I mean, there we can all fill in those blanks of, okay, what would be the impossible thing for me to forgive? What? And I don't want to be tested on it, okay? But guess what? The worst sin against me. I mean, you know, and I always think of my children or my grandchildren if somebody did something to them could I forgive them no I can't not on my own but because of what Christ has done for me I would forgive and like I said don't want to be tested on that because I but I know I don't want to be naive and say flippantly, oh just forgive them but based on what God's word says I can say we can forgive. And then in Luke um, 17.3, this is kind of part part of it. Um, Be on your guard. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. And I... I love this next line because the apostles say to the Lord in response to that, increase our faith. We can ask, God, increase my faith so I can forgive whatever I feel like is unforgivable. But based on what Christ has done for me, we can forgive. So why do we forgive? Remember, it's a command. Um, and I think this is an old dead guy. He says, How often have I wasted precious time by revolving in my mind all the aggravations of the injurious treatment to myself while I am forgetful that every day I have offended God in a much greater degree. Forgetful also that I have daily received from him such tender mercies as might make me forget all the mischief that my fellow creatures could do to me. Ladies, remember what Christ has done. That will help you forgive. And John MacArthur, in his book, Alone with God, sums up unforgiveness this way. And I, I love this. Where there is an unforgiving spirit, there is sin. And where there is sin, there will be chastening. There's... If we don't forgive, and this um, came from a marriage conference, and I think it's apropos. What is unforgiveness like? It's like swallowing poison and waiting for the other person to die. That's what unforgiveness is. Our attitude towards those who have sinned against us should be humble. Philippians 2.3, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. It should be gentle. Instead, it should be that of your inner self, the unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which is of great worth in God's sight. And that's 1 Peter 3.4. Galatians 5.22 and 23 But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. We need to be gentle. And if you want a good message on Galatians, 
you can go to last year's Wellspring and hear my husband talk on that. Um, our attitude should be patient. Romans 5.3, not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that sufferings produces patience. So when someone else is offending or sinning against me and they just aren't aware of it, okay, what are my options? Well, I can overlook, I can choose to overlook the sin and there are some offenses that should be overlooked. Remember Proverbs 19.11, a man's discretion makes him slow to anger and it is his glory to overlook a transgression. 1 Peter 4.8 instructs us, above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. This should be my attitude. Our heart should be to cover over a multitude of sins. Galatians 6.1 says, Brethren, if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, that you too will not be tempted. That's for those times where you should not or cannot overlook an offense. And there are some times where someone's sin is too serious to overlook. And Ken Sandy, again, the peacemaker, gives some helpful suggestions for making that determination. First of all, is that sin dishonoring God? Is someone who professes to be a Christian is behaving in such a way that others are likely to think less of God, his church, or his word? You need to go. If you see someone that is in sin, you need to go. It's the loving thing to do. Is it damaging your relationship? Anything that has disrupted the peace and unity between two Christians must be talked over and made right. Hebrews 12:14 make every effort to live in peace with all men and to be holy. Is it hurting others? Directly would be an example like child abuse or drunk driving. It's hurting others. Or, and it, on those, the authorities most likely need to be involved. Okay, If it's something like child abuse or drunk driving. Or indirectly, by example, it may be the person is setting an example that encourages others to behave in a similar sinful manner. So, for example, if you see me speaking in an unkind way to Tom, you need to talk, tell me. You need to remind me, man, that's not very kind how you're talking to your husband. Um, is, it a, is it hurting the offender? Directly would be drug abuse. They're doing drugs. They're hurting themselves by that or indirectly where it's impairing their relationship with God or with others. Um, if you see somebody continually ripping into people or being, I don't, you know, you, I think you know what that means, what that looks like. Um, Galatians 6.1 again, it instructs us, 
If someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual. Who's spiritual? Believers. If you're a believer, it's, this is not left for the elders and the elders' wives and the deacons and the deacons' wives to go restore. It's our job as believers. Now, if a sin doesn't appear to be doing serious harm to them, it may be best to pray that that your sister or your brother in Christ will see their need for change without being confronted. On the other hand, if the sin seems to be dragging your friend under, you should try to help her. You should hand them the rope and pull them out. Um, now, here's some little reminders. We need to be careful. We are not the fourth person of the Trinity. Okay? We may be God's instrument, but we are not the Holy Spirit. If you need to seek counsel, you're not sure, okay, do I really need to go and talk to this person? I would suggest you try to flatten out the details. And what that means is you make it so that if you come to me, you're, you're vague enough that I don't know who you're talking about. Um, so you flatten out the details. And I... I Never mind. Okay. Um, Another thing to consider, is this a pattern? Or did you see me one time be snappy with Tom? If you see it one time, you can most likely overlook that offense. Um, It may help when you think about it. If, If I was the one doing it, if you know, if you were the one doing it, would you want someone to come and say something to you? Great question to ask. Is it loving not to go? If I let this thing go and this person lives their life for another 40 years and continue in this manner, they're going to be 80 years old still doing the same thing. Is that loving? I would say no. So you need to go. Um, and Tom made sure I put this in here and he will remind people of this if I have something to gain by going to that person like it's going to make my life easier then I really 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 need to check my heart I need to check my motives because my motive may become this is what I want this is good for me it's not about them and choose your timing if you know this person is tired, or, and I, I put this in because of me, if they don't think well first thing in the morning, like this, 6 8, 7 a.m. wellspring, I don't think so well, so hopefully this makes sense. Choose the best time for them. Tom knows, don't come talk to me at 6 in the morning. I'm like, what? And I know I don't go to him at 10 o'clock at night because he would be like, hello. So be, be kind and considerate. Think of them. And remember, Proverbs 27, 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend, but deceitful are the kisses of an enemy. I would rather have somebody be faithful enough and come to me um, and tell me, show me if I'm sinning. Um, 
And Matthew 7:12, in everything, therefore, treat people the same way you want them to treat you. That, to me, if, if I'm doing something, I'm in sin, the loving thing, I want you to come to me. Um, and we need to have more concern for our brother or sister than we do for ourselves. So if I do need to go, what do I need to do? First of all, Matthew 7, 3 through 5, why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Determine if you've contributed to the problem, and if you do, you need to seek forgiveness first. And it doesn't mean seek forgiveness and now lay it on them. You may need to wait to, to talk to them about their sin. Secondly, you need to forgive the person in prayer before going. This helps you be ready to grant forgiveness. And when you determine that you need to go, and you need to say something, go graciously and tentatively. Unless you have clear first-hand knowledge that a wrong has been done, give the other person the benefit of the doubt and be open to the possibility that you have not assessed the situation correctly. Proverbs 18.17 is a great reminder. The first to plead his case seems right until another comes and examines him. Have to be careful because Proverbs 18, 17 can be thrown out like, well, you know, that's not all there is to it. And that very well may be true, but you have to be careful that you don't use that like, well, they're wrong, I'm right. Um, And remember your attitude. It should be humble, gentle, and patient. And if they agree and seek your forgiveness, grant them forgiveness Don't dwell on the incident. You need to renew your mind with scripture. You don't bring it up again unless maybe admonishment is needed because they do it again. Okay? You don't talk to others about it or gossip. And you do your best not to let the incident stand between you or to hinder your personal relationship. So what do I do? If they don't agree with me and I still believe something is sin and going okay we're I feel like we're running out of time but this is really important okay so I've gone to somebody about a sin and it I, I want to be clear it's not maybe a one-time thing it is a pattern of sin and they don't agree with me. What in the world do I do? Okay. And I went to our church's website and I found this. Um, it's our biblical conviction number six, the doctrine of sin. And it's about church discipline. And I'm not going to read it because of time. But I want to encourage you, go to our website, look at our... If you're in that spot, go and read about Matthew 18. What and I'm. What I would want you to do is you go to them once, okay, and you tell them, you know, you, I, 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 
see, this is what's going on. You go graciously, you go tentatively. They don't see it. You still believe it's sin. You probably should go to them again. Talk to them about it again. Then you may need to involve someone else. That's for their protection and yours. You go to establish. Is this really sin? Okay. You may then... Uh, say you go and the witness agrees with you, yes, that person is in sin. You're now at step three of church discipline. And at that point, and it may be a little bit sooner, but at that point, if you are part of Grace Bible Church, you need to go to one of the elders. The elders need to be involved at step three. Um, and you know what? And we talk a lot in our church about church discipline. It seems, if if you're not familiar with it, it seems harsh and unloving, but it is the most loving thing you can do for someone because they've got something in their life that's dishonoring the Lord. It's, I'm, you know, so you need to go but you're not in it alone at that point you need to involve the elders um, how 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 do I respond to that person that's just in unrepentant sin and sometimes these can be in our very closest relationships where somebody is continually sinning against us Is this now the time because their sin is this big that I can just let it rip? I can sin and sin boldly? Well, you know the answer is no. That's what you want. That's what I want. I want to be able to, hey, hey, they've done this to me. Their sin's, you know, their sin's now the big 10,000 debt and mine's, you know, a day. So it's, it's, it's my turn. No, it's not. And I I know. But my sin's not as bad as theirs. You know, if I just raise my voice, that's not nearly as bad as what they've done to me. Is that what God's word says? No. Here's what we need to do. We need to control our tongues and continue to say only what is helpful and beneficial to others. We need to seek counsel, support, and encouragement from spiritually mature advisors. We need to keep doing what's right no matter what others do to me. We need to recognize our limits by resisting the temptation to take revenge and by re- and remember that being successful in God's eyes depends on faithfulness, not results. And we need to continue to love our enemies by striving to discern and address their needs. So I want to take one quick look back again at our friends Yudia and Sid and Tiki. Um, Because Paul's instructions, this has been called a mini course in in biblical peacemaking. Uh, Philippians 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again I will say rejoice. Let your gentle spirit be known to all men. The Lord is near. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, 
which surpasses all comprehension will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, if there is any excellence and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. The things that you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So the mini course in peacemaking is right there on your handouts. I have those in my Bible on a post-it stuck at Philippians 4. So I know when I need to be a peacemaker, I go there and I can look at that and that will help me. Um, I want to talk briefly about restoration because that can be, we can get the reconciliation part, but restoration is a little more difficult. All, and this comes again from peacemaking, peacemakers. Although reconcili- reconciliation can sometimes take place with little or no special effort, in most cases you will need to remember the saying, if you are coasting, you must be going downhill. In other words, unless a deliberate effort is made to restore and strengthen a relationship, it will generally deteriorate. This is especially true when you are recovering from an intense and prolonged conflict. Moreover, unless you take definite steps to demonstrate your forgiveness, the other person may doubt your sincerity and withdraw from you. Peacemaking Women uses this analogy. True forgiveness sets us free to work toward restoration of the relationship. As is often the case, we may not feel like close friends at the end of the peacemaking process even though we have reached a point of reconciliation. This is because the need for restoration still exists. To better understand this concept, it is helpful to make the distinction between reconciliation and restoration. Think of the analogy of a broken bone. If a leg is broken, or a foot like barbs, the doctor sets the bone and the gap is healed. It's reconciled. This is what happens when someone confesses to us and we forgive. In the same way that a freshly set bone is not ready to bear weight, a broken relationship, newly reconciled, often needs time and help to be fully restored. A broken bone might need a cast or physical therapy for complete restoration. The same thing happens to a relationship following reconciliation. It often takes prayer, time, and focused effort to build trust back into a formerly broken relationship. A good rule of thumb, the greater the fracture, the longer the recovery time. Just as a healed bone that never bears weight will never grow stronger, relationships that are avoided or neglected will never grow stronger. God's grace and mercy enable us to strengthen reconciled relationships. We may send cards or emails, take extra time to share a gift that truly communicates love or any other countless acts of kindness that communicate our commitment to the relationship. Reconciliation is an event, but restoration is a process that slowly restores the relationship. So one last thing. Who remembered what I didn't do in the beginning? 
we didn't flip over our notebooks. Does this apply to the disciplines? And we are going to fly through this. Our rocket ship's going to go really fast. Okay, remember, what is peacemaking? It's responding to conflict biblically. Yeah, turn over <coughs> your notebooks. Okay, our purpose to encourage the women of Grace Bible Church to shepherd their hearts toward Jesus Christ with the Word of God so that they live out the gospel, thus strengthening the church in its gospel purpose. We're ministers of reconciliation. That's our ministry. Ladies, that's the gospel. Okay? Um, Remember, discipline one, she prayerfully shepherds her heart toward God through the word of God and in particular the gospel. My first need, your first need, is to be reconciled to God. And we must continue to pursue our relationship with God through his word. And we must remember the gospel and what Christ did for us. Okay? That's discipline one. We need to shepherd our heart. In order to be a peacemaker, I've got to shepherd my heart by reminding myself what God has done. And you'll see this as you, in your reading plan, spend time. You'll see conflict and restoration over and over and over. And then we need to take this first into our homes and then into our church. We need to, within our homes, we need to be peacemakers. We have a ministry of reconciliation and we have a ministry of reconciliation here at Grace Bible Church and then out into the world. We need, we need to be different. People need to see our church and go, wow. There's something different. Those ladies, they're all different. But look, they get along. They love each other. Look at their families. This is how peacemaking applies. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this morning, Lord. Just thank you that you have reconciled us to you. That you sought us while we were in sin. You gave us a new heart. You gave us Jesus. You gave us your Holy Spirit. Lord, you you are a good and faithful God. Lord, I pray that you will help us to be known as women that are peacemakers. In Jesus' name, amen.